Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 283, and today's guest is Oshin O'Connor, co-founder and CEO of Recharge. One piece of advice that many successful entrepreneurs share with other founders is to wait as long as possible before you raise outside funding. The longer you can stay as a successful bootstrapped company, the more leverage you will have when you are finally ready to raise capital and negotiate the company's valuation. For Oshin and his co-founder, Mike Flynn, they took a very smart approach to building their business. They built a product development agency and launched several products to solve different problems with a focus on e-commerce. From this approach, they were able to fund their business until they had the right product where they could build a massive business. This ended up being Recharge, a subscription payment solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale subscription offerings. Case in point to my earlier statement, the company was self-funded for over five years before raising capital. Its latest round of funding was a $277 million growth round of capital at a $2.1 billion valuation. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like advice on building a remote first company and how to create a vibrant and inclusive culture, Oshin's background story and why he chose the entrepreneurial path, all the details on their product development agency and how it funded the business, finding product market fit with Recharge and how the company has scaled over the years, product distribution fit, what is it and why does it matter for entrepreneurs, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you are listening to this podcast, then it is highly likely that you are interested in the founder journey and lessons learned around building companies. So please make sure you don't miss any future episodes by subscribing to the VentureFizz podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Oh, and while you're there, please don't forget to leave us a review. It really does help us out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Oshin. Sheen, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because we got a lot, a lot to cover. There's uh, so much that you've accomplished throughout your career. And uh, to, to kick things off, you know, one of the things that's been on the radar for most founders, um, you know, largely due to the pandemic, was uh, establishing a, a successful and vibrant culture while being remote. And that's also parlayed into some companies being like, well, now we're just going to be remote first. But you've been doing this for a while, so I thought it would be super helpful to understand your approach to building that you know, vibrant and inclusive culture while being remote. You know, we were remote from the, the very beginning and scaled all the way up to, you know, whatever we are at, you know, the 400s of team members. So uh, definitely have a lot of learnings. Um, you know, I think it's changed over time, right? So like any company structure, the way that you do stuff when you're, you know, three people in, a, in an apartment versus, you know, 20 people versus 100 people versus, you know, 400, 500 people is very different, you know. Um, but I think there's a couple of things that didn't change in that journey. And I think one has been very transparent and authentic, um, because I think you just don't have as much touch points by osmosis for people to understand your intentions, to understand the culture you want. And so in a lot of ways, you have to be a lot more polarizing, right? And, and you do that because you have just less touch points. Um, and so I think that's one of the big learnings that we've had is on town halls um, and in other environments is just to be very authentic and transparent, right? Um, and the goal is to 
that the right people lean into that message and the, the wrong people, it doesn't resonate, right? Um, and so that we can all kind of better align. Um, I think another key thing that we've learned with remote too is that you have to be like, there's benefits of any system, um, you know, in an office system and a remote system. I think in a remote environment, you have to do less things because again, you just don't have, it. a lot of times the connection points are harder because you don't have that osmosis, right? So you have to be a lot more focused. You have to be a lot more coordinated in your actions, uh, in, your, in your thought process. So that comes down to how do you document things? How do you plan things? Again, that deliberacy is really important at scale, right? And I think we've learned that uh, different stages, like the hard way of, you know, hey, you really have to write this stuff out because people don't have that, you know, those casual conversations uh, over, over a beer or a walk. And did you always find like video conferencing, Zoom, like that was, you know, something that was always helpful to bring people together? You know, it's interesting, like Zoom, video conference, we just do it by nature, you know, Slack yeah. too. We're like, we don't even like mm -hmm. use email really in the company, which is kind of funny at all, <laughs> you know? Um, I would say that I personally, like Zoom, I think everyone's getting, has, has gotten Zoom fatigue, you know? And I think there is something to be like, having to look at someone in a, at a video all day long is very taxing. Um, and, you know, I think there's just like little things about, you know, a phone call versus a, a video call that have different also pluses and negatives. And I think one thing is with video, you start to worry about, Hey, what is that a person thinking? Oftentimes the audio is off in the video and, you know, so much of our communication is nonverbal. And I think, you know, so, I've definitely actually pushed more people to phone calls in the last year versus Zoom because I think it's just such a taxing event. Um, but yeah, I think overall the technology has gotten so good, you know, from a communication perspective, like that is not the challenges. Um, that said, I, we do try to do it in person, uh, you know, oftentimes once a quarter or, you know, once a year, at least depending on the teams to kind of build that uh, camaraderie because like you need some in-person versus remote as well. Cool. Well, let's rewind the clock. So where did you grow up? What were you like as a child? So I grew up in in Los Angeles. Um, you know, as a child, I definitely uh, uh, was more introverted uh, by nature. Both my parents are architects, first generation. Uh, they're from Ireland. So, you know, kind of the immigrant, hardworking background where you had to succeed <laughs> and you had to push yourself and make things happen. Um, I was always very much in the kind of tinker type um you know i was very much into the arts and wanted to create build things um you know i went to school originally i went to school in uh, community college because i didn't get into college because i was pretty bad at languages um but i was good at everything else and there i started you know i went to school originally for arts and then in architecture and then i went to economics and then i taught myself to start a program after that so kind of a variety of a uh, background I was terrible at languages. Spanish. <laughs> I was a mess. I was a mess. Couldn't uh, handle it. Yeah. No, I couldn't handle it at all either. I mean, that's, I literally got all A's in high school, except uh, C's for every language class. And so apparently that doesn't cut it. <laughs> uh, all right. But you did end up getting a degree from UCLA. So you did all right. You did all right. So yeah, totally. Uh, all right. So how did you teach yourself to program? And then how did you get started down that path? 
you know, I met a friend in uh, just like in college. Uh, he was like kind of a serial entrepreneur. And I didn't know really, he was an early like 90s tech entrepreneur. And I didn't really know much about technology at the time. But, you know, getting to know him, I realized like this was the future. And, you know, it's so obvious now that, of course, it has become the future. But, you know, in 2007, uh, 2008, kind of like that wasn't so evident, right? You know, there wasn't a lot of SaaS companies, um, you know, Salesforce was pretty much it and a couple others. And so, but it was very clear to me that the world is going to get digitized. It was very clear to me that people plus computers will create amazing things, right? And to me is that that's the, the thesis that the, the most successful people will leverage the computers on top of their own ingenuity and what humans do really well then the ones that do that best are going to be the ones that can kind of program and understand the technical side. Um, and so that's when I started to teach myself to code. Uh, it was really hard back then because you just had the emergence of like Stack Overflow and some of these online courses and some of the easier, more accessible languages. And so you didn't come, you know, it's funny is like a lot of times the best engineers I've met are the ones that taught themselves because it's almost like a filter factor of like, if you're willing to go through all the pain, especially at one point in the history of like teaching yourself to code, then you probably have the, the will to do a lot of things, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you have the ability to do yeah. it. And so I think it was just really hard, you know, and I, luckily I had a friend that was also trying to learn how to code. And so the, the two of us would just spend, you know, probably half our time just teaching ourselves. And I think, I think it was maybe Udemy, I forget which was the first online course, but the first online course kind of came out and that reduced that made things more accessible and so we started off that so you know it's really interesting is like as things emerge from technology or products it really unlocks a whole new group of people that have that desire and i think we were benefits of like the first emergence of things that made it easy for people to teach themselves to code um otherwise we might have never jumped through those hoops so yeah and like your professional career like how did you, like what did you start out doing out of college well, you know, I graduated in 2008 and so it was like the economic downturn. So shit just sucked, you know, like there, like there yeah, was no job. It was a mess. Yeah, it was, it was a mess. Right. And like, you know, I came from like immigrant working parents and stuff. And so like, you know, I pretty much felt I owed it to them to kind of help pay back and, you know, what they invested in me and all that. And so I was like, okay, the only job I could get was at uh, Deloitte Consulting in like finance. And, you know, it was a really shitty job in a like, kind of a cool area. <laughs> so that, that was the funny part is like, we worked a lot on like technology projects and M&A. And so I got to see a lot of cool, interesting companies and see a lot of activity, but the job, the day-to-day -day job, I hated uh, immensely. <laughs> and I was just not very good either because of that. Um, so that was like my first endeavor, you know, first thing out of college. And I think, you know, from that, I taught myself, like, I really am not a good employee. Uh, <laughs> fundamentally, <laughs> especially things that don't uh, capture my imagination. And so from there, I was like, you know what, it's 2008, the world just sucks. So I kind of had to like, bear it, you know, and I wanted to like, I, I promised my parents after paying for college that I would stick for two years in a corporate job. You know, <laughs> so I did that. And in that period, you know, I just became a better programmer. Um, I started to do entrepreneurship, my first kind of like, entrepreneurial endeavor was getting involved with a nonprofit that was doing microfinance and development work in Central America. So really excited about that. And 
my first kind of like tech product was building a crowdfunding platform for that nonprofit. So that was my my early career jump into tech technology. Yeah. So you had your two years at Deloitte, which that's another thing that I, I I'm sure people have done research on this or because when you graduate from college has such a major impact on the trajectory of your career starting out. Now you could cry about the economy and say, Oh, it was bad. And I never succeeded. But I think people that graduate when times are tough are actually propelled to work harder to do other things because they don't come out where it's frothy. So, um, cause I, like I graduated in 94 and it wasn't as bad as 2008, but it wasn't glorious. It was, it was rough sailing, but, um, all right. So let's talk about that first startup. So empowered.org, what was that all about? So it was a crowdfunding platform for nonprofits. Um, and you know, this was like the, the beginning of like online fundraising payment systems. Um, you know, and at the time the thesis was like this nonprofit that I, got on early involved with and like kind of helped grew up to significant size. One of our limiting factors was the technology, right? It was the ability, how do we mobilize people? How do we collect payments? Um, and so we are like, let's build a product for ourselves that we really need and it'll make us more successful. And we think that other people, by doing that, there'll be a market for other people. Um, and so uh, I quit the job at Deloitte to, to work on that full time. Um, and, you know, worked out of a, worked with two other individuals on that. And it was really successful in the sense that it helped the nonprofit succeed. And, it, you know, we, you know, raised, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars online and mobilized tens of thousands of students and all that kind of stuff. But the, the limiting factor was that it was a great product for us, but it wasn't, there really wasn't a market for other people. And the, the realization I had from that was one that nonprofits move extremely slow <laughs> and most of them do. And it's just not a very good market to, to sell into a, a product, um, you know? And then the other part lesson I had was that at that time, a lot of interesting companies came out of the crowdfunding space. You had Kickstarter, you had a lot of payments companies emerge at that time. And so it was kind of like we were scratching a lot of the right ideas and places, but we were just slightly off, right? So um, you know, it was what I realized from there too, is it's like, everything's about, you know, timing the market, but it's also where do you fit into those things? Um, and that you have to be willing to adjust, uh, as things change. And you're still in LA, right? Yes. Yes. I, you know, I never, I always thought I had to make the jump to, to San Francisco because that's where some of my friends in technology were. Um, but you know, it was hard because I had no money uh, and I was living with my parents. So for, for, you know, my first seven years of entrepreneurship. And so I didn't really have the money to move to San Francisco. So I was kind of stuck. And that was also the reason why I went remote too, was like, you know, able to find really good, interesting people to work with remotely that weren't just in LA. Cause the pool at that time was very small in LA. Well, I was going to say like the startup scene is vibrant in LA. Now there's tons going on, but what was it like then? You know, there really wasn't, a lot of companies, you know, I think we had like Cornerstone on demand. Um, we had, you know, some really old school companies like idea labs that were like big in the early nineties and package mm -hmm. software. Um, you know, we had some, you know, there was like the kind of entertainment tech, but it wasn't really that big. Uh, you know, there was one co-working space. The first co-working space in LA was this place called Coloft. And that was like kind of the hub. Right. And I remember the working there early days and like everyone you, you got to know everyone in tech in L.A. at that time. 
and they all worked and worked or were connected to this one co-working space or had some connection to it. So that was really like the the cultural hub, I guess. Um, and now all sorts of interesting companies have come from people that were there. Um, so yeah, it was very much the backwaters in a lot of ways because like everyone who's you know had a technical backing really went to SF because they had to because the company just weren't there. Um, and I mean that's completely changed now, but you know as you know, really technology has proliferated everywhere in the world, not just by a, a geolocation like San Francisco. So you went on, uh, and well, I guess at some point you met uh, your co-founder, Mike, right? Like how did how did the two of you meet? You know, it was definitely like a small community. Um, and I used to do like barbecues and like, you know, like as a way to kind of meet people because I was like, you know, I need to meet other people. And, you know, at the time of Empowered, you know, the the startup was like, I think we got to like a dozen employees and it just wasn't really going anywhere. Um, and I realized I needed to start a new venture. Um, and in that process, I started to, to evaluate. Someone gave me really good advice is you should evaluate like what are you good at and what are you bad at? Right. And that whoever is your co-founder should complement that. And it was like, you know, it's, it sounds pretty obvious, but I think very few people actually take that, uh, you know, reflection you know, um, and I realized that I was really good at the macro side, really good at like understanding the bigger picture, connecting with people, understand the product. But I, you know, my natural inclination was not to get super into the details. Um, and I needed a good co-founder that would force me to, they'd be the forcing function. Um, and so my, that's when I met Mike over at a barbecue, we just hit it off as friends at, um, and we had that kind of personal connection. But I also saw kind of like the yin to my yang in a lot of ways of like how we thought and how we worked. And I thought we would be better together than, you know, as individual pieces. All right. So getting started, you started Bootstrap Heroes, which was more of a like a like a development agency, right? Well, you know, so we started working together and we were totally broke. Right. <laughs> so it was just like one of these things was like, we were like, how the hell do we like keep it together so that we can actually build a software company? Right. right. Um, and in that, you know, it was just like, fuck, um, you know, we have to like do something else on the side to make money. And so we had to start doing a development agency, you know, because mm -hmm. um, it was like the one skill set that we could sell. And so that was the beginning of of the of kind of the endeavor of us working together. And when we first started working, we didn't really know um, what area we wanted to be in. We just knew we wanted to work together. We wanted to build interesting stuff. Um, and so we basically, at that point, did a stock of like the universe. And we wanted like, we just cold call all the smartest people that we could get a hold of, right? Like we literally would ping people on LinkedIn and be like, hey, really respect you, admire you. We're young, you know, we're young entrepreneurs in LA. We don't really know anyone. We're trying to figure out what to build in the future. Love to get your opinion, your feedback, what you would do if you're a young up and coming entrepreneur. And so we just got on a phone call with all these really interesting people over a period of a couple months who were kind of telling us like, oh, this area is, is emerging or this is happening. And from that, we started to understand like, what were the markets that were not fully obvious that they were the big, going to become big things. Um, but that we should start to evaluate more, right? And in that, it really came down to uh, crypto and commerce. <laughs> and wow. so th those are the two markets. Uh, and this was like eight years ago or eight or nine years ago um, that we started to do this. 
And from there, we we evaluated those two different markets. Um, and you know, I think with the both would have been amazing choices at that at that those juncture points. Um, and I mm-hmm. definitely should have invested more money at crypto, even at the <laughs> absolutely it would have been the right move. But we just felt like commerce, building for entrepreneurs, building for these creators, we could resonate with them. It, it was more exciting for us at that time. Um, and so then we we dove in to commerce, but to we figured also we didn't really know a lot about the space. So running a development agency would kind of like not only pay for our bills, but it would give us those feedback loops so that we could get information, right? And, you know, it was, it was interesting is I, I read a bunch of books. I mean, I, I love history and I love entrepreneurship and business. And so I've read a lot of different histories of like how different technologies emerge and opportunities emerge. And when you do that, you realize that a lot of times it's like happenstance, right? And that it's the people that find the really big, interesting things. They don't go out with that. Here's the thing, but they go more in an open creative mindset of like, hey, how do I get lots of inf- feedback loops of what are the problems in the world? What is emerging and what is interesting? Um, and then they quickly iterate on top of that, you know? Um, and and so I almost likened it to the, the first kind of like people in the oil industry that would go on and just dig holes everywhere, right? And then they would try to have... And then the ones that became more successful understood, you know, the geography and, you know, the, the, the natural dynamics of the, where oil would be. And then they got better at digging where the right holes were and, and started to calibrate. But, you know, and I think that was the kind of process we were like, you know, how do we find out what are the best problems has to go after? And then constantly iterate and test on that. And the agency kind of gave us those feedback loops to do that and explore. What were some of the products that you were building outside of what you ended up focusing on? So we got into commerce um, and we actually launched six different products before recharge. So we literally would code out a new product every month and then we'd sell and market it afterwards. And the idea is like, hey, you know, how do we quickly not have a, you know, we have a hypothesis of why this product could be bigger and what what's the problem set and what's the solution, but how do we quickly iterate and test? And I think it's so hard is that oftentimes when you get more involved with something, you get more of a sunk cost fallacy where if you kind of like time box it, you're more likely to cut it off when it's appropriate instead of wasting your time. And so the products that we launched before, we launched like an email solution, we launched like a loyalty solution, we launched like an onsite personalization system. So we launched like all these different products that were interesting. And, you know, they, they got relatively successful in the sense, like I remember, you know, after Recharge started working out, um, we basically uh, sold the other products. So we went out and we, and that was kind of almost like our seed round. And we sold it for like 250K, uh, which was a, a huge amount of money for us at the time. But we got it up to like, you know, $10,000 in revenue uh, over a very short period of time of, you know, like eight months. And so, but, you know, each time we're like, this is not big enough. Let's get to the next thing. Well, but what I think is so important for entrepreneurs to understand of that milestone of being able to build products, fund the business, but then this portfolio of products that you sold that you said, hey, that, that was like our seed round. It allowed you to stay bootstrapped for as long as you did before actually going to your Series A. And I'm sure at that point, you know, raising capital was a different scenario versus the company that was, you know, needed the capital to fund the company from day one. Part is like, you know, we a couple things that happened is like I had seen a bunch of friends who had gone down the traditional like VC route early on, and I saw how um, they basically became lottery tickets in my view, right? And 
you know, so many of them had like, you know, and maybe it was just the time period that I was in. So many of them, you know, raised significant amounts of money and it just didn't work out. And I was just like, man, these guys are really just like betting, you know, and like do. And I was like, this is a great business model for the venture capitalists. But as an entrepreneur where this is like my life's work and we're like, hey, you know, um, I might not, you know, this might not work out. It just seemed like a kind of a foolish way to do it in the beginning. Right. And it seemed like a better way at the time. Hey, how do I give myself the space to kind of explore and figure out what's right? And then explore if like this like venture capital thing makes sense for the business, um, you know, because I think a lot of businesses are great businesses. They're just not venture capital style businesses, you know, based on the returns and what they can be. And so I think that was, a, was an amazing thing um, that we were able to do that. And I think we got to, you know, 18 million in revenue or so um, before we did our first series A. And I think that really did give us the full leverage to one, control the future of the company. Um, but, you know, make sure that we weren't just being a, a lottery ticket, you know, early stage. All right, let's talk about recharge. So like what, like what happened? How did that product start to take off and like, what is it? And just all the details from the early days to where it is today. So I think like that was like our, you know, our sixth product, um, or seventh product, um, that we did. And, you know, it was funny is like the, again, going back to this idea that the agency was a way to get information right and get quick feedback loops and reps in, in an interesting emerging area is that the agency we were getting all these deals you know requests to do subscription uh systems um uh, for merchants and basically merchants were at this time you had the launch of amazon subscribe and save and merchants were basically saw that and wanted to mimic it right um and, you know, it wasn't obvious uh, of a problem set because, you know, I think one, either you thought like no one's ever going to subscribe to a physical product, which was like the vast majority of people, or two, you were like, hey, actually, there's already tons of subscription so uh, software out there and that will solve it, you know? And, you know, I think one, we had, you know, we had the understanding by being close to the merchant, seeing the request that the existing software out there, the there were, you know, recurlies, the stripes, the charge fees just weren't built for physical products. So that became very evident to us that that wasn't a thing. And two is by seeing, you know, these merchants early on doing the first subscription models, we were like, yes, there is a demand here because there is categories where the consumer, um, the shopper is willing to subscribe to stuff for a ease of use and also for a discount. Right. Um, and so that's when we, we decided to build it. And again, we started super basic, right? So, you know, again, we coded it out in the first month and then we started to market and sell it. And it just like hit off. It, like it was like lightning in a bottle, right? Where mm -hmm. we were getting so much demand for it that we, we knew it worked, right? And I think that was a that was like one big feedback that uh, an early advisor gave me was like, you know, when people ask like, do I have product market fit? And he, he was basically like, you know, if you have product market fit, like if there's a doubt, then, you, then there is no doubt. You don't. <laughs> exactly. Right. And so like, you know, that was a big realization is like, holy crap. Like, well, those other products, there was like minor fit. Right. And we like, it worked out, but you, you didn't feel like the lightning in a bottle where you're like, oh my God, this, 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 ha this has traction. And, you know, so it was, that's what it was from the beginning, you know, but you know, we had, started so small in the initial product that we did 
that like everything was manual. Like there was no automated systems of like, how do we build, you know, we build a subscription billing system where you couldn't actually automate the billing. Right. <laughs> you know, and like we hadn't automated anything. We hadn't figured out the onboarding flow, literally the onboarding flow is someone goes in and they set up, there was a calendar link. There was like a calendar link and they would set up a time with me to talk. Uh, and then I would manually add them to the database and then I would set them up. And so it was like really raw and basic what we launched, but it tested out the initial hypothesis, like that this was going to be coming a big emerging thing. Right. Um, and so at that point, very quickly, like probably like one month, like that month, we were like, okay, we need to put these other products on autopilot. This is the one let's just double down on this, um, and go full force. How did you get distribution initially? Like, were you already part of like the Shopify app store? Like how, how are you getting early customers? So I had kind of like, you know, the other, you know, failed or, you know, not great outcomes on the previous startups and so did my co-founder. And like, you know, I think one big lesson that we both got is like, you know, oftentimes people talk about product market fit of like, you know, how does a product solve a problem in the market, right? And then that's what it is. But what people don't talk about enough is product distribution fit. It's like, hey, how does a product get distributed in the market? Like, how do people learn about that product and consume it and buy it and all that? And so early on, we were like, you know, we were looking not only for what were these problems, but we were also looking for what are the potential distribution systems, right? For a given a given solution to a problem. And, you know, oftentimes, like what I've also realized too, is like, you can't have multiple distribution points, especially when you're early on, you really need to have one that you nail extremely well. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, like that will peter out and then you have to find out the new distribution mechanisms and such not. And what we realized at that point that Shopify was about 20,000 stores. So really small. I mean, and you mean there were there are millions of stores today. And like at the time it wasn't as obvious as it is today, but it was, you know, looking at, it, we were like, wow, this app market that they built is starting to take off. And like, people are really starting to buy off this app market that they built. Let's lean into that. And so that was like the initial like distribution was the Shopify app market, but what we started to do is we really started to optimize the product for that app market. So we optimized it to get reviews. We optimized it for ease of use and, and accessibility and all these things. And there were serious product things that we had to build around that to get it going. But that was kind of like the, the nitro on the system to grow. How did you figure out like pricing too initially? Like that's, you know, such a problem that entrepreneurs struggle with. Yeah, I mean, I think pricing is a funny one because it's like, one, I think everyone overcomplicates it, right? Like, <laughs> like it's like one of these things, like, you know, um, you know, the, I think the hard thing is there's a little bit of art and there's a little bit of science, right? The, the art is like understanding, like, hey, new categories, how do you price it? You know, uh, you know, what, how does your thing fit into the market of things? The science is like, how do you iterate and test upon it, right? And I think what we decided was, hey, let's start, you know, with one plan, which was like a lower price. Uh, and it was like plans. And in that conversation, we started to understand like, wait a minute, we are undercharging people. Wait a minute. People are willing to pay based on the value we drive, right? So as we drive more revenue, they're willing to pay us a cut out of that more additional revenue, right? 
And I think that was really instrumental in understanding like what is like the underlining pricing structure of like, how do you charge? So instead of doing plans, we did variable. Um, and then two, I think we took an iterative approach of like, hey, we start one place, but then we move our way up on the pricing, you know? Um, and I think the the mistakes that people make in pricing is one, people don't charge enough. So that either they undercharge the market and that doesn't give enough revenue for them to grow a great business and drive a better product, or they charge too much. And I think to start, and I think the nuance there is when people charge too much in the beginning is like you only get a, a part of the market and then you it's very hard to go down on price because then you're basically killing your own business model, right? Um, and so I think like the the kind of the art is like, how do you start at like maybe a lower price point, test and iterate and move your way up, um, and but keep on doing that and holding yourself account, uh, disciplined, you know? So we, we talked about, you know, the fundraising. So you did raise 50 million for your series A in 2020 and then your series B, which was you know a large growth round. So 227 million in 2021. So talk about the evolution to that stage where, you know, 227 million, that's gas for the fire growth type of round, right? I think we did our first round um, like two and a half years ago. And that was a the $50 million one. And like that one was like, we had to do it. One, um, basically like we were at a point where we were over 10 million in revenue. And like, we literally had like $15,000 in the bank. <laughs> and it was just like, <laughs> it was like craziness. And there was like a month where Stripe didn't pay us. They like incorrectly flagged us as fraud. Cause I think there was a, we found out later on, there was an engineer on their side that made a mistake on an update on a table. So like, Literally, oh, <laughs> like that almost that event almost put the business out of business because we literally had this like 800k bill um to employees, right? And you know, it's not like I don't really know people at the time that would have that money. And so we luckily worked with Stripe to get unflagged for fraud and get our money and all that. But it it, get, it showed us the weakness of our system of like, yes, we were having this amazing growth, and yes, like you know, all the success, but like the system was fragile to these kind of out, outlier events. Right. Um, and so that was the first round we decided to do the 50 million. Also, we had so heavily uh, invested just in product and engineering. So we, as product engineers, that's where we always put all our money. And so we realized like we were starving the business from a marketing perspective, a sales perspective, all these other things. And so I think that was, it really helped us put money in there and start it off. The only thing is once we did that round, COVID hit and it just like was rocket fuel on the business. Like anyone in e-commerce and you, you can see Shopify stock for this, it really accelerated uh, our, our growth. And so we actually, based on that growth and based on where we got, it was actually not enough money that we raised, you know, uh, which sounds kind of crazy. And, you know, but, you know, based on you just start to realize these things like you need different levels based on how much revenue and how many employees you have and how much you're starting to burn and all that. Um, and so then, you know, the last, you know, last round that we did with iconic, we felt like we were still starving the business. Um, we needed more buffer. And then we also felt like, you know, you, the world was becoming more uncertain, um, which has definitely become the, and this was like a year and a half ago. And I think what's transpired over the last year and a half ago, you know, has basically played this out. And in that uncertainty, we felt like we needed a larger war chest to kind of sit on and have optionality in the future, right? Um, and so 
that was the iconic round that kind of gave us that war chest to sit on and really like create that optionality of like bigger and better things we want to do over the next, you know, couple of years. So what's the current scale of the business, like number of merchants using your platform, subscribers, and then you've made an acquisition. So there's been a lot going on. We have, you know, over 50 million active subscribers on the platform, 15,000 merchants. So pretty significant scale, um, you know, and, um, you know, it's been a, a wild ride to, to this point. Yeah. I mean, well, it's, it's growth, but a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, you know, you talked about how you raise capital at a good time and you need the war chest to continue to growth, but it's also, you know, money that's hopefully helping you weather the storm of all this looming recession talk and how hard it is to raise capital or at the you know valuations maybe people wanted or the speed that they needed the capital raised. So how are you thinking ahead? Like a lot of entrepreneurs are making hard decisions. So uh, like what's your outlook over the next 2023 or beyond? So I think luckily, you know, as we talked about earlier, I got to experience 2008, right? And I think that, you know, retrospectively, that was a huge gift. Um, because what it kind of taught me is that the companies that uh, survive and the companies that become stronger from these kind of events are the ones that really get into the basics, right? And, you know, the basics are like, hey, how do you day in and day out drive more value for the people that you serve, right? <laughs> you know, how do you make sure that a dollar you put in is a dollar you get back, you know, within a short window? And I think we all kind of like lost sight of the basics to a certain degree over the last, you know, this crazy bull run we've been part of. And at the end of the day, like that's just a lot, the basics are just a lot of hard work and common sense, you know, around these decisions. And I think and, and it's a lot more conservatism. Like we don't live in a world of free cash. Like that's basically was the world for the last, you know, you know, last year and the year before a little bit. Right. And so I think you have to conserve your, your cash reserves because you just don't know where the world will be. So like, that's one. Two is you have to make sure that your payback periods of like your investments are actually driving the value that you think they are and within the windows of time that you want, right? So I think it's just a lot more conservative, a lot more long-term thinking. And I think, you know, there's a lot of the, the great companies have been built during recessions, right? But I think that it takes a mindset of like, you know, focusing in on the customer and thinking for the long run, not playing a short-term game, you know, for like, you know, I think a lot of companies were like, Hey, let's burn, you know, all this money to acquire a customer in the next year. And we don't know the unit economics of that customer or that unit economics of that customer are negative, And we have to figure out how to expand it over time. And like a lot of times those companies got into trouble because they basically, those cu customers became not as valuable as they thought they were going to be you know, or that they were not able to increase the value over time. Right. Um, and like often that's really hard. Right. So I think that long-term thinking and more the bootstrap mentality that we had early on is definitely the kind of modality that people need right now. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it, things were way too frothy and it just came back to a real realistic reality of you build a business where there's a product that people pay money for and you're hopefully making money while doing that. So it's just back to fundamentals of what business 101 is. So, all right. So looking back, like what, what are some other key lessons you've learned while building recharge? For me, at least I've definitely learned that business is definitely not rocket science. You know, <laughs> like it's like, it's like a very much just fun. It's more about fundamentals, right? Like 
you know, listening to customers, solving their problems, right? Charging appropriately for those problems, you know? Um, you know, I think understanding yourself, like, again, you know, what are you good at? What are you not good at? Balancing yourself out, like everything's part of a system, right? So, um, yeah, you know, um, and then I think, you know, the, just like thinking long run, like what it's interesting, even now today, like I have a lot of friends that are like starting new companies and stuff. And like, they're thinking about going into the hype, you know, areas that are the most popular areas today, which is probably like degenerative AI or something. And like, that's hype today. That wasn't a month ago though. <laughs> it was, you would have exactly. said crypto. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was crypto. And I, and I guess like my thing is one is like, whatever you do, you have to do it for a decade plus. So it just takes a long time. Uh, two is I think that the, these things are all cyclical in nature. Like what will be the hype will not be the hype soon. And then it'll come back. And then, you know, and so you have to be like, at least we did very well because we focused on areas that weren't hype, but areas that we thought would become big. Right. And I think it's very hard to work in an area that's a hype because it will become an unhype at some point, you know, you want to get things on the right timing. Right. Um, so I think that's also really important is just the timing of all this stuff. Right time, but you talk about like that fundamental like experience part that you built a startup empowered.org, and then you even worked on a nonprofit before that where you had this experience and foundation to go do, you know, your product agency. And then so you had that foundation. You just didn't just jump into commerce and say, We're gonna build products that help, you know, with commerce and payments. You had that experience, you saw trends, and you were able to look ahead based on your knowledge of what you had already done. There's a, a a great book, uh, Steve Martin's uh, autobiography, and he had this line like, be so good that they can't ignore you. And I think about that a lot is that so much should just of your actions to be like, how do you become better at your craft and at whatever you do? And by doing that with time, you will be successful, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in all this other like bullshit, you know, but if you just focus in on that of like, hey, you know, like, myself was like I knew I wanted to get into the software and technology and so I learned how to code and then I learned you know how to be a great product person and like I just chipped away at the problem right and got better and better and even today I think like that is like I'm just starting off on this journey I don't know anything you know in the, the grand scheme of things and I need to learn and get better um and I think if you have that mentality you're just what you know you will have an amazing journey and that's what matters yeah, I would, you know, Steve Martin, obviously amazing. And that made me think of like Jerry Seinfeld. He he writes comedy every day. Like you would think someone like him based on his mastery, it's not something he would continue to practice, but it's still something he does every single day. Totally, right? And he's just getting a little bit better incrementally all the time. Um, yeah. So for first time founders, like how, like how do you learn how to lead? Like that's something that... Um, some founders can struggle with of, of leading a team or taking that executive role and, and helping groom a well-oiled team? I mean, one, I think always have good mentors, advisors, people that you can learn from for anything, right? There's not just leading and management, you know? And then two is like, you know, constantly learning, educating yourself, reading, all that. Um, and then I think finding the right style for you, right? Like that's also extremely important is like, you know, I think the best leaders are very authentic, right? They are very, they hold themselves accountable. They hold their teams accountable in a very particular way. And so, you know, I think people can build a lot of great companies and be a lot of, and be great leaders in different, in completely different ways. 
Um, but you know, they have to be true to themselves. Right. Um, you know, for me, I've always found like leading is that if you fundamentally show people how you care about them, right. And that what you, what they're doing matters, they will follow you. Right. And I think that's just, you know, it goes back to us all being part of a, a tribe, right. As all being, you know, hunters and gatherers for thousands of years, who are the people that you were, you know, back then people were going to follow, they're going to follow the person like, you know, had their back, right. The person that was going to make sure that their life, their way of life was going to be better, right. Not worse. Um, so I think, you know, you know, the, but being a leader and a great manager takes time. Right. And I think that's just, it's a constant thing. What's the startup scene? Like we talked about this earlier, what the startup scene was like early on, but what's the startup scene in LA these days? I mean, it's just a lot bigger, you know, there's a lot of events, a lot of, you know, different things going on. Um, you know, I probably spend more time on the startup scene online in a digital way than in person right. nowadays. Like, yeah, cause true. I think just the growth of social media connections, it's like you find, you start to find who do you want to have those interesting conversations with? Who do you resonate with? Who's doing similar things as you? And they're not geographically bound um, oftentimes. And so I think that's probably more my connection. I probably should do more in person, but also I'm a bit of an introvert to introvert too. So like, um, you know, there's not much as in person. Yeah. All right. What are three apps you can't live without? Oh, audible. I listen mm -hmm. to books like nonstop. Um, Me too. You know, <laughs> I know, right. Like it's like audible. Um, I definitely, I'm all about my like health and well-being because I have to like take care of myself before I can do anything else. Uh, so the aura ring, um, basically tracking my sleep every night and making sure that I get like, that's the foundations. So, um, uh, I think that's extremely helpful. And then probably it's becoming a combination of like Coda and Slack, like Slack is a good and bad thing, which I think, you know, probably should live without more because it's just become the new email and a huge amount of noise. But Coda, I would say just like keeping track of everything, you know, all my notes, schedules, everything uh, being well-structured in my thoughts. What's a uh, recent Audible book that you would recommend? I mean, well, I've been going actually a lot more fiction right now. Where's my phone? I'm going to pull my phone. Audible has been around forever, but literally I think I just discovered it. Like in terms of the practicality and how it would resonate with me like a year ago. And I just, I, I do... Like I consume a lot more content that way. Whereas if I actually had to read it, which I never would like do at night or whenever, like, I'm just so grateful for it. Yeah. No. I, so one I read just recently was uh red notice by Bill Browder. I thought that was just fascinating. Just about him starting a business in Russia after the collapse of communism, like basically as an entrepreneur building this up, how did he find opportunities in that market, exploit it? And then at the end, how did he end up going head to head with Putin? Um, and I just thought as an entrepreneur, that was just an amazing story. And just from a historical perspective too. And I guess topical too. Yeah. Yeah. I read, uh, or I listened to, uh, David Goggins can't hurt me. Oh man. Yeah. That's a great one. <laughs> that's insane. Like, I mean, you just, uh, like you just realize how much, of what you're what you can do is mental yeah and it puts everything in perspective right you know it's like when you hear people like david goggins or bill Browder who like went through extremely hard situations and challenging stuff you're like okay my life's not that hard <laughs> like yes i'm dealing with a lot of challenges but 
don't yeah. want everything's relative. Absolutely. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? I love to outdoors, a lot of hiking. Um, I also do a lot of meditation. So I meditate every day and exercise. So just try to take care of my, my body and spirit at the same time as my mind. Very cool. Well, Sheen, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story, all the great work your team is doing at Recharge, and obviously all the great advice. Cool. Awesome. Have a good one. Take care. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.